So, now when David gets to Mahanaim, I have to stop and say that every time. Mahanaim? I don't know. <laughs> I've been going, going over spelling rules with Ethan and Tyler. So that I, helps. It does help. I feel like I'm getting better at pronouncing words because of the spelling rules. But, yes, phonics, yes. I still don't think I'm saying that right. Anyway, when he gets to that place, three people at the end of this chapter here come to his aid. And it's interesting who these three people are. So the first one in verse 27 is Shobi, the son of Nahash. Did you guys catch that? Do you remember Nahash? We've seen him a couple different times. He was the guy referred to, his name means serpent, all the way back in 1 Samuel, who uh, Saul had to go and save the Jabesh Gileadites from Nabesh. Remember that? He was going to poke their eyeballs out. And then this is interesting because this must be a different son. I mean, it is a different name. But remember, David's men got humiliated when he tried to send them to the Ammonites when Nahash passed away to comfort them. And this is when half the beards got cut off and their pants got cut off and his men were humiliated. So this is the same group of people, but this is a different son. This is Shobi, son of Nahash. So it's really surprising that he comes to Israel's aid, especially to David's aid at this time. And then Macher is the second one. And what's interesting about him is uh, that he, uh, we, if we look back at 9.4, he provided for Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived with Macher prior to Mephibosheth going to the palace. Isn't that interesting? So I looked at those two guys and I just thought, you know what? You just never know how God might use your kindness to bless you later. David was kind in both of those situations to different people when he didn't have to be. And God now is blessing him in a big way when he needs it for that kindness. So that was just a little encouragement to me to just like keep being kind, keep doing what God tells me to do or encourages me to do encourages my heart to do even when there's no reward for it because you just never know God sees it but he also just might hygienic he just might reward you for it in a way that you never expected it might come back to bless you at a different time so how do I see God working in this chapter on David's behalf number one we saw Absalom follow Hushai's advice number two God does not allow the priest's sons to be found we didn't really talk about that but they were seen, but then they get help from different random people who are willing to help them, who are on David's side, hide them, and they're able to escape. But that's all the Lord. I mean, I see God's hand, I think, written all over that. And then thirdly, God sends refreshment and provision to David once he gets over the Jordan. So, Jenna, we're at the end. Now we're going into chapter 18. Okay. We're just kind of trying to review it because it was a lot of text yeah. this week. I apologized for that already. <laughs> All right, 18 then is the battle that takes place. So David has his guys divided into three different parts, Abashi and then Joab, and then I don't know who the other guy is, Atai, the Gittite. I don't know where he really came from, but he divides them up. And then they say, you can't go with us. 
there's just no way. I mean, David's just too valuable, I think. It's also possible David's getting quite old, and maybe he's not as, I mean, not really that old. I think he actually died pretty young, but he's old for what they are, what the intense fighting that they're going to do. But when it, what's the last words that David says to them in verse 5? Deal gently with my son. Are you kidding me, David? I just wanted to get mad at him just a little bit. I mean, I tried to put myself in his shoes also. Like, how would I feel if it was my child? But he is evil. And he is trying to kick David off the throne. He's sleeping with his wives. Like, he's just, he's evil. But David has on his fatherly eyes right now, and not his kingly eyes, and he is not seeing this situation for what it really is. David, 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 I know. Do you think he feels like remorse though because he can protect, like, you know, like with Tamar, for example, like with that situation, like he feels like Trish has been a lot I would say so. Yeah, when you, yeah, I would say when the, uh, the unraveling of your own sin is yeah. just right in your face yeah. and you just wish so badly that you could just fix it or like explain to your generals, look, this is all my fault. Yeah. You know, if I hadn't have slept with Bathsheba and done the sin that I did, this, we wouldn't be in this spot. So just spare my son, okay? Like, yeah, I could see him trying to take some of that on. And actually, we'll see that. Do we see that this week? Or is it next week? No, we see that this week. When he, his grief is so intense. We can just go ahead and skip there for a minute. And then we'll come back. But his grief is, oh, at the end of verse 18. Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. Would I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Why do you guys think his grief was so intense? I had, in your questions, I had you look up. The last time when Bathsheba's baby died, he handled it so well, right? I have an idea. Go for it. I don't know if it's right. Go for it. My idea is that he, because he states back when the, the child dies, that he will see him mm-hmm. again. So mm-hmm. in my mind, he knows he's going to see the child yeah. again in heaven. But with Absalom, he knows he's evil and he's thinking this is it. Mm-hmm. I think That's you're I think you're right on. That's what I was thinking too. You guys have any other thoughts over here? Oh, with Bathsheba, you mean? Yeah. Or what? Right. That wasn't his to her. at the time. Gotcha. So I thought maybe he thought that was, but I sure. think probably her answer is probably better. <laughs> a little bit of both. I, th- I, think there's, I, think there's, I think there's both. I think there's the human perspective, like just the, right. just rips at you. Back to the sin, his own sin. Like he just, like, I created this mess. 
Yeah. 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 A lot of layers. I mean, this whole thing, go ahead. Well, and then, you know, there's always a discussion about, like, you'll hear people call in needy and they'll say, they want to know, do children go to heaven? Do babies go to heaven? Right. And that is always a scripture that is referred to mm-hmm. to answer that question because mm-hmm. David says, I, will, I know I will see him. Yeah. And that's God's word. I've heard that. Yeah. I've heard that answered on Moody that way. Yes. That is, yes. Yes. Children Yes, they're face to face with the Lord. I know. Thank you, Lord. Oh, that's the grace and mercy of our God right there, right? The everlasting love. Yeah, I think David, deep down, even, yeah. Well, and so maybe that's one of the reasons why he did not want them to kill him. Maybe he thought I could still get to him. Maybe he thought we could still, I can just explain to him. We can have a talk like we never had before. And maybe he'll follow the Lord. Dick, maybe that's why. But if they killed him, it'd be over. So maybe that's one reason why, all right, David, I'll give you off the hook just a little bit, why they wanted, why he wanted to spare his son. Now go back to verse 9, verse 9 of chapter 18, and let's talk about Absalom for a minute, because while it's gross, it's also kind of humorous. Absalom happened to meet the servants of David while he's riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak. And at first, I didn't get it. I didn't either. I had to read it. Okay. Do you remember his massive amount of hair? Oh. And every year he would cut his hair and it weighed like four pounds or five pounds or something like that. He's got a lot of hair on his head. And his hair, yeah, I think it's all piled up on top. So almost every commentator agrees. He got snagged by his hair. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just picturing like the Yeah. yeah, his neck. Yeah, I'm like, he'd be, yeah, yeah, his hair, and I think he had a lot of hair. Remember how beautiful he was? Like, there is no blemish on this man, and he is hanging from a tree caught by his hair. <laughs> Should have cut a little bit more hair off. Uh, I thought that was, I thought that was kind of funny. Okay, now this, I'm just, uh, so I'm going to go to those Deuteronomy verses real quick. Deuteron- if you want to jot this down, Deuteronomy 27.16. 27.16 says, Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. So he's cursed because he dis- dishonored his dad big time. Okay, that's the first no-no. And then we already mentioned the other one. Uh, write down verse 20 also. Deuteronomy 27, 20 says, Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's nakedness. And all the people shall say, Amen. I like how it ends with that. <laughs> Amen. Now, also, if you want to write down um, 21, 23. Deuteronomy 21, 23. So he's cursed for his actions. And then I thought this was interesting how this kind of fit in with it. It says, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. I think God hung him on this tree. It says, You hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. 
for, and then it goes on, for a hanged man is cursed by God. Isn't that crazy? Sad? But you see God's word fulfilled in such a big way right here. But God fulfilled it himself. It didn't matter what kind of plans the army made. It did not matter what kind of plans Ahithopol gave or advice or anything. God's word was going to happen to A.T. And God was going to make it happen. Isn't that striking? Cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. And then we get the rest of the text. I don't know if they knew this but or if they were just being somewhat kind. They weren't really kind because they didn't give him an appropriate burial. But they did take him off the tree. I mean, they speared him. Joab killed him. His men made sure he was dead. I guess he wasn't. I don't know how three spears doesn't kill you. So I'm, I'm not really sure about that one. One commentator said that you could actually interpret it as sticks, oh. not spears. Yeah. I know. So if you like stuck him with sticks, that's really gross. I know. So then did the, the other men have to actually, I don't know. It doesn't matter. The Lord, I think, made sure his hair got stuck in that tree. That's what it comes down to. And you just kind of see all of these verses come to fruition in this text. And it didn't matter what anybody else's plans were. God was going to see this through. Okay, how are we doing? Everybody good so far? All right, have we covered? Okay, so then after Absalom does die, Joab does blow the trumpet. And that's what they take him off the tree. And then verse 17 says, that they threw, they threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a great heap of stones. So it's kind of like the death of someone who's stoned, too. You know, it's not a pretty picture. And it sort of makes us think about, like, the Canaanite king of Ai or Achan. Remember Achan, his sin in Joshua seven twenty six, And they both had a heap of stones on them. So this is not a way an honorable man's death is uh, taken care of. So, but they did take him off the tree that day. So anyway, ha, I don't know. Crazy. This is what sin does, right? This is the messy, and this to me also proves the Bible is true because none of this would be in here if I had written it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we would just try and paint a really pretty picture all the time, but the gory details are in here as well. Okay, so then David hears of his son's death. We've got the two runners that go. We're not going to really spend much time on that. And David's grief is very intense. We just covered that. But in chapter 19, then, that's kind of a problem. Because how does that make these people feel, these men feel, who have just fought and could have lost their lives? There could be some casualties on David's side. We don't, aren't really told that. We just say it's less. We know it's less than what... Um, Absalom's side lost a lot to the, that must have been a treacherous forest. Yeah. You know? I don't know what, what that would have been like, but it said more men were lost to the forest than actually. You know, I asked Sam that question. Yeah. This evening when I was reading it, and he's like, well, there must have been a lot of lions. And <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh my! <laughs> Maybe there was, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I'm not much of a hiker, but I have been in a forest before. <laughs> you made it out alive. I made it out alive every time. I'm still here. So, I don't know. It was intense, whatever it was. Okay, but 
this does not make David's people feel very good. And they slink back into the city where they're at, just almost like it was a loss, hearing David wail over the gate. So they all hear him when, he's, when they're coming back in because he's wailing over the gate for his son. And I don't know. I'm, I have mixed emotions on how I feel about Joab. He's, he has a lot of power. He knows he has a lot of power. He's like the guy behind the scenes who can kind of sway things whichever way he wants a lot of times. But in this instance, I mean, I have to give him some credit for going up to David and saying some pretty harsh words. Verse 5 of chapter 19, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Whew. Wow. Speaking of counsel, we're going to talk more about counsel, but we've seen a lot of counsel given in chapter 17. Now we actually see some pretty good counsel, I think, given here in chapter 19. He tells him to get down there and go greet his men. And David listens, and he does go. And the people do come before the king then. So just, and really, Joab's actions toward both Absalom and David, they really saved the kingdom. So I don't know. You guys have any thoughts on Joab? I don't know what to think of him. Especially then, because the next chapter, right, in chapter 20... Uh, when we have one more rebellion that raises up in chapter 20 with Sheba or Sheba, if it's Sheba or Sheba. But at the time, David had demoted Joab, probably for killing his son, and made Amasa, his other nephew, who had been leading the army for Absalom, the general of the army. So he put him in charge, but Amasa fails to come through in the time span that David gave him to ready the army to put this next rebellion to rest quickly. So then Abashi goes, Joab goes, and then Joab murders Amasa. So that's cold-blooded murder right there. So I'm like, I've got mixed emotions about this guy. I don't know what to think of him. But by the end of chapter 20, then, Joab is in charge of, or Joab, Yeah, he's in charge of the army again. He just kind of, he's the guy that keeps finding, I mean, he makes it happen for himself over and over again. Now he does, he is loyal to David. I'll definitely say that. And he does take care of this rebellion very quickly. I mean, again, these are just crazy stories. They go to the city where Sheba is, and they're like surrounding it to take the city down. And then the woman speaks to him from the wall and she's like what are you doing this is the mother city of Israel and so then Joab says well all I really want is Sheba can you just get him for us and she goes and the people behead him and they throw his head over the wall like what in the world if these things were on tv I would not watch them (laughs) you know this would be r-rated and we would not watch these things in my house but here we are in the house of the lord talking about them so that's chapter 20 for you. I just laughed because I just thought, oh, here's a woman so wisely shows up. Like, 
Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was funny. I know. Yes. Women show up, it seems like, very strategically in Scripture. And sometimes they do some very bold things. And this woman, she was actually very wise, I think, in her actions. She really saved the city by what she did here. So speaking of wisdom, I mean, counsels, keep that in mind. We have a lot of different counsel going on through this whole thing, who people are listening to. Um, All right. What did we skip? Oh, we skipped when David came back into Jerusalem. So back in 19, is this all making sense so far? Okay, everyone's still with me. All right, so David's going to return to Jerusalem now that Absalom is dead. But the people aren't really sure what they think of David anymore. I don't know if you guys caught that, but verse 9 of chapter 19, they say, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. So they're like blaming him for fleeing and not fighting Absalom right then and there. But then they do decide, well, maybe we should bring him back. And then David sends word to the priests and tells them, hey, you need to go talk to the elders of Judah. Why aren't you guys bringing the ones quickly bringing me back here? And so David kind of gets them going. In the end, we have the, Judah, the clan of Judah, and then we have half the Israelites. It's interesting that it's half the Israelites bringing David back. Where is that at? Oh, that's in verse 40. The king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him, and all the people of Judah, and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. But it wasn't all of Israel. So then the Israelites get really mad about that. They're like, hey, like whiny kids, why didn't we get to help bring the king back? Why didn't you tell us? And so you see this division growing between the house of David, and the rest of Israel, even now. I think that obviously whoever, like the narrator, the writers of scripture, they're writing this later on. And so they might be writing it with the knowledge of knowing it's split anyway. But you can just see it coming down. You can see it progressing. So they're not happy about that. But on the way back to Jerusalem, then it's kind of like a reverse. Remember how on his way out, David met all these people? And now he meets a lot of the same people, kind of in the same order a little bit. But first he comes across, was it Shimei? Is that who's first? In verse 16 of chapter 19. Shimei is the one who cursed him. And now he's basically begging for his life. Interesting. And David does spare him. But did you guys look up in 1 Kings 2 what happens to Shimei? Yeah, yeah, so it's pretty obvious, even though David spares his life, he does not trust this guy. Because then when he's giving all of the orders to Solomon, then he's like, you need to watch out for him. And so Solomon gave him, gives him direct orders, you're not allowed to leave the city, he doesn't obey. Solomon then has the right to kill him, and he does. So they don't trust him, which I think appropriately, he obviously is pretty wishy-washy in his thinking. Um, so that's Shimei. Also with him was Ziba. Remember who Ziba is? Ziba is the servant of Mephibosheth. And so Ziba wants to get there first, I think. 
because I think Ziba realizes he might have told a little white lie on, yeah, about Mephibosheth. So he's going to get there to, you know, let David know, I don't know what, but try and make his story known, make him seem like a good guy. And then Mephibosheth shows up, and David's like, why didn't you come? And that's when we hear, well, Mephibosheth says, I was tricked, and I didn't have a donkey, and so I couldn't come. And Mephibosheth's appearance may be uh, a little stinky, (laughs) verse 24. I don't know how long David was gone. It doesn't tell us. There's no indication, like, was this days, weeks? But he had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes. Yuck. What does taking care of his feet mean? I don't know what that means. Washing them? Yeah. If there's special things you have to do to your feet, or they did back then to their feet. Whatever it was, this guy was in bad shape. Toenails, is that what he said? Get your spear out and just, (laughs) you don't have to bend over at least. (laughs) Don't go too far. Uh, So David then decides, you know what, I'm just going to split the land between both of you. And then Mephibosheth is like, I don't even want it. I'm just glad that you're safe. You can give it all to Ziba. And then we have Barzilli in verse 31. And he's one of the guys that came to David's aid back in chapter 17 when he needed refreshment when they first crossed over the Jordan and David really wants to bless Barzilli here and what I kept thinking well Barzilli's old and he's like I don't deserve to go back with you to the palace I'm wondering if Chim Ham is his son I don't think it tells us anywhere it says servant or it says your servant could be his son maybe sends him to go live with David but the picture that I saw in this is when it's all said and done and the king comes back to Jerusalem, he is blessing the people that blessed him, right? The people that stood with him. And that just reminded me of Christ. When he comes back, he will bless those who have stood with him. He will bless, like, just like in this example here. I thought that was a, just a neat picture. of um, David portrays Christ in a neat way there. So um, it all, that reminded me of, of Matthew 25, 31 through 40, where Jesus says that when he returns, he'll separate the sheep from the goats, but then he'll reward those who were with him, who fed the people, who clothed the people, who did it in his name. And they're like, when did we do that? And they're like, well, he says, well, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. That's what that reminded me of, of just that kindness we're trying to live in a manner that blesses God, that is for him, and Jesus will reward us for that when he comes back. So we may not always feel it now, but he will when he comes back. All right, that's our long overview of those chapters. Everybody still good? All right, let's draw a little bit of application here from these Now, at the end of the book of Judges, Judges ends with rape and civil war. That's how it ended, well, when we talked about it last year, but that's still how it ends. The book hasn't changed. (laughs) It's it's with rape and civil war. (laughs) 
And now here we are at the end of Samuel, and we have rape and civil war again. That's how this book ends also. The thought at the end of Judges is that Israel needs a king. There's no king in Israel. Everyone was just doing whatever you wanted in his own eyes. So the idea then is Samuel is, oh, a king is going to make things better. But we get a king in Samuel. And then by the end of Samuel, we're right back where we started. It did not make things better. We're right back where we were at the end of Judges with rape and civil war. Because it's not just any old king that can fix the problem, right? It's Jesus. He's the only one who can fix the problem. I've been going through, uh, uh, well, it's just next in our history book, but we've been talking about communism and Marxism with the kids, which I think is really good for me to be talking about with them right now, and socialism and what all of these things are. And I'm like, guys, we've got problems in our country and every country. But I was like, the, this here does not fix it. You know, you can't just blend everyone into one social class. You can't mush the people, or squish the people at the top, raise the people up at the bottom, and fix the problem. Or you just can't make everyone equal. Like, only Jesus can fix it. So there is problems, but he's the only one. And that's what we see, I think, here in Samuel. So to try and live apart from God means we're just going to end up right where we started. We're not going to get anywhere if we try and live without him. But as we saw last week, Jesus can reverse things, right? He's really good at reversing things. He turned graves into gardens. Every time I heard that song last week, I was just like, yes! He replaces weeping with rejoicing. He gives you a beautiful headdress in place of ashes. He replaces your torn garments with garments of praise. He reverses things. So the bottom line as I see it is this. It is foolish to try and live without God. It's just plain foolish to try and live without God. After all, like he's really the only one who can fix anything. Now we saw last week, we saw a few references to foolishness in the sense of things kind of reminded us of Nabal, like Tamar wanted her brother, I forget how she worded it, but the rules, the word was really fool, like don't be a fool and do this. We saw different references, things that reminded us of that. And now this week, the theme of foolish, con foolishness continues as it's really foolish for Absalom to think he could actually take the throne from David. That's just really foolish thinking. And then Ahithophel's advice is turned to foolishness. And that was David's prayer that God would do that. So for the application tonight, I thought it would be appropriate to kind of stick with the theme of foolishness and draw three principles out of foolishness. So here's your first one right off the bat. It is foolish to follow the word of man without first consulting the word of God. It is foolish to follow the word of man without first consulting the word of God. It is foolish to follow the word of man without first consulting the word of God. So here's what we see shake out in this story with Absalom. And I got this quote from the New American Commentary, so I didn't come up with it. But I liked it. It says this. I'll read it a couple of times. It says, Human wisdom, untempered, 
by divine revelation produces results that are neither desirable nor productive. I'll read that again. <laughs> it's a big statement. Human wisdom, untempered, so like without, human wisdom without divine revelation produces results that are neither desirable nor productive. It can't. Human wisdom without divine revelation cannot produce good results. It's impossible. So as I've mentioned several times then, we've had references to counsel or advice or wise people or foolish people throughout all of these chapters. Now, if you think about David, at every turn in his life, David sought the word of the Lord, right? Like we're, we saw that a lot. We've seen that a lot throughout David's life. He seeks the word of the Lord, while Absalom simply seeks the advice of men. He doesn't seek the Lord at all. He only seeks the advice of supposedly wise men. I mean, he had the wisest one of all with him, Ahithophel, right? But the outcome for each of them, I think, just speaks for itself. You cannot just seek the counsel of man and not have any counsel of God you just, you, it, you're going to just destroy your life, totally destroy your life. So it's, all, it's not just about the counsel of what you're getting, but it's like who's counseling those people? Who's counseling them? And so whose counsel are you ultimately listening to is what it comes down to. Now, there is a big difference between being smart and being wise. I don't know if you guys have ever thought about that before. There's a really big difference between being smart and being wise. You can be smart without being wise. You might know some people like that. <laughs> I know some people that are really smart. And, but they're, maybe they're not that wise. But you can only, here's the difference though, you can only be wise if you have God. That's the only way you can be wise because wisdom comes from God alone. He's the keeper of all wisdom. Proverbs 2, 6, and 7. Proverbs 2.6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Wisdom comes from him. Daniel 2.20 says wisdom belongs to God. Jeremiah 10.7, Among all the wise men of the nations, there is none like God. Just all the wise men. Doesn't matter. Every nation, there is none like God. That was Jeremiah 10.7. Proverbs 9.10 we know that one. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 9.10. Which means submission to the Lord alone as the creator God is where every human heart begins its journey to having wisdom. That's where it begins. You will not be wise if you do not turn to the Lord at some point in your life. Because apart from God, there's no accurate knowledge. He alone is truth. Therefore, says Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's a fool for you. There is no God. Yet, in contrast, a wise person seeks after God, according to Psalm 14.2. A wise person seeks after God. So foolishness is founded on self. And the big problem today is self. Self, self, self. Everything is self. It is so foolish. <laughs> It's so foolish to put your hope in yourself or to think you can do it. You can do it. You can do anything. That's foolish. You can't. I'm sorry. I'm just telling you right now, you can't do it. <laughs> not without God and not unless God wants you to do it. Not unless you have his blessing. Not unless you want to walk with him. 
Like, it's just foolish to think we can do anything without God. Colossians 2.3 says, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. They're all in him. All the wisdom and all the knowledge is in him. So to live apart from Christ is to live apart from the one and only valid source of true understanding. So when a scientist turns against God, it's like having the manual for understanding and flushing it down the toilet. Like, they might be really smart, and they might make some good discoveries. They can no longer be wise, because they just turned against God. You see the difference, I think, between wisdom and smarts? So, you can be really smart. Don't get me wrong about that. You can build stuff. You can know stuff. Things that I don't really care about. Theories, things that I don't understand anyway. All that stuff. You can know those things. All that stuff that's way over my head about all kinds of subjects. But without Christ as your Savior, you cannot be wise. So what does it look like to be wise? Okay, Proverbs 10.8. The wise of heart receive commandments. That's a wise person. Proverbs 10.8. So the wise listen to the Lord. The wise of heart know God. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and great was the fall of it. Well said, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> That's Matthew 7, 24 through 27. He compares them right there too. If you listen to me, you're going to be wise. If you don't, you're going to be a fool. And the Apostle Paul sums it up like this. Look carefully, then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Thank you, Paul. That's a great summary. <laughs> I looked at that verse. I was like, That's, I love Paul. That's great. Great summary. What that means, though, is walk in accordance with the wisdom God has lavished upon you in Jesus. He's given us wisdom. We have the Lord. We have the mind of Christ with the Holy Spirit inside of us. That blows my mind. But how much do we use it? How much are we willing to listen to him and walk with him, right? I think that's the other question. Okay. Now, in contrast then, oh, okay, let me finish that verse. That comes from 1 Corinthians 3.19. Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, not as wise but as unwise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. The wisdom of the world is folly with God. What is folly? Well, basically, it's idiocy. That's really what folly is. The wisdom of the world is idiocy to God. Or we could say foolishness. The world just doesn't have any wisdom to offer us. Only God does. So here is your second principle. I don't know if this is very uplifting, but it is what it is. <laughs> it's necessary. That's right. His second one, it is foolish to stand with the world instead of the word, capital W. It is foolish to stand with the world instead of the word. It is foolish to stand with the world instead of the word. But it's tempting. I mean, it is tempting. We have to think of some examples to bring this home a little bit. The world says money makes us happy. I have believed that before. Sometimes it is tempting to still believe that. The world says that physical beauty matters more than inner beauty. 
that's hard for me sometimes when I look in the mirror, you know? Uh, the world says that we know better than God. Well, anytime we really sin or go against God, that, that's basically what we're saying too. We know better than God, right? Uh, the world says that God is old-fashioned, which I don't really have a problem with that one, but some people do. They think that the Bible's, oh, that's the old way. We need to, we need to be with, get, get with the times. We need to get with the times. You know, we're trying to see people change things so much. That's the world thinking. That's not God. Uh, the world says that we can live by our own rules. We can just make up our own rules. That's foolish thinking. That's what the world says. But no matter what is going on in the world, the wise person, the wise person sticks with God. So no matter what's going on in the world, the wise person sticks with God. So here's the encouragement that I see in these chapters regarding this. God, in these chapters, we already talked about, especially when we looked at Deuteronomy in regards to Absalom, God's word is consistently and completely fulfilled no matter what throughout all of these chapters, throughout all of this story. God's word is completely and consistently filled no matter what. So we can hang on to that encouragement when it looks like the Lord is losing, when it looks like we're going to have to choose. I mean, if you had been in Jerusalem, would you have followed Absalom or would you have followed David? following Absalom might have looked prosperous, you know, maybe there was some, remember he stood at the gate promising people a lot of things? Mm -hmm. Were you going to listen to those whispers, or are you going to go with the guy that just got exiled and is now living on people's um, gifts on the other side of the Jordan with not much? They're far from home. Which guy are you going to go with? That might be us someday. You know, we might have to go with Jesus, who's basically being exiled from this world. The world is going to try and cancel him. We're going to have to go with him. We need to stick with him. But the encouragement for us is right here. It's in all of these stories where they're gruesome, but where we see God's word upheld no matter what. We see God's sovereign hand over each of these stories no matter what. We see him guiding the whole thing, right? That offers me a lot of encouragement. And then we see God blessing those who stuck with him, right, in the end. That, again, offers me a lot of encouragement. So even the greatest possible assemblage of wisdom, political power, and military might could not derail the performance of God's will. God's will will happen. God's word will happen, just as he says, all of it. So for those of us who really might be worried or maybe we've been anxious, I just don't even watch the news anymore, but when I do, I get very anxious. I think this offers a lot of peace and maybe a lot of hope that nothing can stop God's word or God's will, no matter what's going on. So we already talked about for the most part, but I want to drill home where we saw God's word fulfilled specifically in this story that we looked at tonight. Well, we saw God's word of judgment on David fulfilled to a T. God had told them, what you did will be done out in the open. And that happened. Just as God said, God had said, the sword will be a part of yourself, of your house now. Obviously, that's happening. David's already lost two more sons now because of the sword. Um, and then we see, at the same time, though, we see God's covenant promise to David continue. He had given David a covenant to stand upon, promises to stand on, and God is still being faithful to those. So 
God is still with David. God is still protecting David. Once again, God gives David rest from his enemies, even though his enemy was his son. And then also from Sheba, that rebellion that got snubbed immediately in chapter 20, God gives him rest from his enemies still. Although the sword is in David's house, the point is that David still has a house. His house, he still has a house. It's still intact, just as God promised. And it amazes me because only God can weave together words of judgment while also upholding words of promise. Isn't that neat? Just like only he could do that. Mm -hmm. Only he could weave together words of judgment while also upholding words of promise. So maybe in your family even, like there's been some judgment. Maybe there's been some consequences to some sin. Maybe you've seen some unraveling happen. Maybe there's things that have happened with family members or you're worried about it. God is also upholding words of promise at the same time. He doesn't let any of those slip. He's faithful to all of them. Thirdly, we already talked about this, but we saw God's word fulfilled against Absalom. He was cursed. He had done wrong. According to the Torah, he needed to be put to death. God hung him on a tree <laughs> by his hair. Psalm 119, 160 says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. That's Psalm 119, 160. So it may not always look like it, but God and his word govern everything. So just take a deep breath. God and his word govern everything. He speaks and it comes to pass. Now, you can't let, we can't let that scare us either, right? He is very merciful. We're going to talk about God's mercy next week. He's very merciful. He's very loving, but he's also just. So while he upholds words of judgment, he also upholds words of promise. And anyone in Christ is no longer condemned, right? We also have that promise. And I, don't, I, I think even though we're seeing the fruit of David's sin come to pass here, God didn't love David any less, you know? He had restored him fully, even though these things were happening. Now, um, the last one, your last principle, I'm going to go ahead and skip to that, and then we'll kind of come back. Here's your last principle. It is foolish not to believe God. It is foolish not to believe God. And here's why. Several times we referred back to 1 Samuel chapter 2. And we've looked at Hannah's prayer. And we've talked about how her prayer is really kind of a table of contents for the entire book. <clears throat> I'm actually going to look at it in here. Just look at how God's word comes true through all of this. Okay, um, I'm going to start in verse 7. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. We've just watched that happen throughout all of these chapters. God's word 
does happen, and it will happen. It continues to happen. The Lord will judge the injurers. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. He has strengthened David. He has strengthened Christ. He exalts the horn of his anointed. Like, God's word happens. We've watched it happen, and we've watched it be fulfilled. You've heard the phrase that the proof is in the pudding. So that means you have to try something to know if it's actually true. I mean, if it's if the quality of it, right? Not if it's true, but if it's true quality. So the original phrase for it, the proof is in the pudding is the proof of the pudding is in the eating. That's the original phrase. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. In other words, consume it and you'll know whether or not it's any good. That's the gist of that. It's the same way with God's word. And that's exactly what God tells us to do. Consume it eat my word, <laughs> come and eat, and you will know, you will know that I uphold my word. You will know that I am faithful. The proof is in the eating. Or maybe we could say, instead of the proof is in the pudding, we could say the proof is in the Bible. <laughs> it is in there. In life, there's really only two choices. Believe God or don't believe God. That's what it comes down to. Believe God or don't believe God. And the tra trajectory of everything in life comes down to that. So if you believe God, you're going to be wise. You're going to head in the right direction. If you don't believe God, you're going to head towards foolishness. There's really only two ways. The hard part is sometimes it's going to look like God is losing. That's the hard part. Life's not always going to be easy. There will always be, there's going to be seasons, there's going to be days where it looks like evil has the upper hand. Kind of feels like that right now, I think, in a lot of ways. But it's not true. It looked like that for Absalom too, right? He had the support of Israel. He had the palace. He had the smart people. He had the wives. He had everything. He had the bigger army. He had the ark. The ark was in Jerusalem. He had everything. But none of that mattered because he did not have God. And that's all that matters. But we have God. We have God. You can write down Psalm 37, 5 through 20 if you want. You might enjoy maybe reading that tomorrow morning. Psalm 37, 5 through 20. I just think it's a great reminder. David wrote this psalm. It's just a great reminder. It says, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. David knew this firsthand. I thought of Saul and David, and I thought of, I thought of David and Absalom. David says, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. He knew that too. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Verse 17, for the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. Verse 25, I have been young, this is David, and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken. Hmm, what a testimony. He never saw the righteous forsaken. And then he says in verse 30, 35, I thought this was interesting. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. But he passed away. And behold, 
he was no more. Listen to this. Though I sought him, he could not be found. I wonder if he was talking about Absalom. Mm -hmm. Though I sought him, he could not be found. And he ends with this. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. David knew this firsthand. He lived it and he testified to it so that we could live by it too. We just got to trust the Lord. We have to believe the Lord. But to believe the Lord, we have to trust the Lord. We have to stick with him stick and listen to him. Phew. We don't want to just be seeking the counsel of the world all the time. We need to be seeking the counsel of God. So in that first principle, I said it's foolish to follow the word of man without first consulting the word of God. I do think having wise counsel is a good thing in our lives. So don't hear me say that. <laughs> but it's not wise counsel if who you're getting it from does not know the Lord and is not following the Lord. Right? Can you, do you mind saying that quote you said? Yeah, which one? Yes, yes, that one. That was a good quote, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Wish I could claim that one. It <laughs> says, human wisdom untempered by divine revelation produces results that are neither desirable nor productive. I can read it again. Yeah, <laughs> it's big. A lot of big words. <laughs> Where you at? In the <laughs> Good. Human wisdom, okay. human wisdom, untempered uh -huh. by divine revelation, okay. Okay. produces results okay. that are neither desirable nor productive. Got it. And that is the New American Commentary. And I'm telling her, because she's, she's seeking a counselor for her, and I said, you need to make sure that it is a Christian biblical counselor. Biblical counselor. Yes. You want to make sure that that's where she's getting her advice and her... Yes. I could not agree that's, more. So when you were saying that, it, she came to my mind. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I think that, I mean, we didn't even talk about that, but counseling is really good, mm -hmm. and counseling is very popular right now. But there is a lot of unwise counseling because it's not biblical. They do not know the Lord. If you're seeking counsel from someone who doesn't know God, isn't walking with God, you're not seeking wise counsel. It's impossible. You're seeking counsel. But yes, worldly theories. Yes, books they've read, different things, and it's really only God who can change your life. So. Yeah, let me pray. We can talk some more if we want to. Father, thank you for your word. I, I just love your word. Thank you that you consistently and completely fulfill your word all the time. Nothing goes undone. Lord, I don't know how you do it. You're amazing. Words of judgment, words of promise, your sovereignty over us all the time. Lord, I just, I'm just in awe of you. Thank you for allowing us to be in a relationship with you. I pray your wisdom for all of us. 
I just pray that we would seek you and that we would be wise women that can offer counsel to others as well. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.